Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Special guest, Roger Webb. Turn, if you will, to John chapter 6, verse 26. Uh, This passage will be rather familiar to everybody. Um, After all, Mark touched on it uh, several weeks ago. We're seeing a lot of these themes recurring in uh, the past few weeks. But before we go any further, let's pray. Our Lord God and our Heavenly Father, we again come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to praise and honor and adore you because you are great and greatly to be praised. And your greatness is unsearchable. Lord, as we consider this topic, as we consider your word of God, your word, that we pray that your Holy Spirit would take your word and impress it upon our hearts and upon our minds so that where we need convicted, Lord, convict us. Where we need encouraged, Lord, encourage us. Where we need to be uh, thrilled and ecstatic, where we need whatever we need in our lives, Lord, which you know, fill that need because we are desperately needy people and it is you that we need. Take your word and and glorify your son in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, last time that I spoke, uh, the topic was uh, the fear of God. And that topic really is the basis for any relationship with him. Now, um, that message was intentionally unbalanced because this is actually a series of messages that are supposed to tie together. Unfortunately, I'm not speaking as regularly as I did before, so it's been several months since I I spoke that, I preached that last message. But what what I'm trying to get across is that the fear of God forms the basis out of which grows our love for God. And, and even though that might seem very strange, seem very odd, yet it is very, very true. Now, just as w- by way of uh, reminder, uh, we said that the fear of God is the natural reaction we as finite creatures have when we begin to realize just how great, how awful, how magnificent the eternal, infinite God really is. Now we're not going to get a full perspective of the greatness of God right away. But to whatever extent we have, we begin to gain that that awesome knowledge. We begin to develop the fear of God. It's not merely a warm and fuzzy, misty-eyed feeling that is suggested by uh, reverential awe. It includes a very large portion of irrational trembling that causes us to crumble and seek to hide. If you turn to any of the passages that where a human being experienced some form of revelation of God, you get an idea of what this fear of God is. Take, for example, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. 
When, I, when the heavens split open and Isaiah saw the throne of God and the, the Lord God of heaven above the throne and the cherubim saying, holy, 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 the seraphim, I should say. What was his response? Woe unto me. And the, the woe is, is, is a whole warning that his whole personhood is becoming undone. He's, he's crumbling because he saw the holy God and the first thing that he realized was how utterly sinful he was. Now this was a righteous man. This was a godly man. This was a man who had served the Lord. And now he's confronted with God's holiness. And what is his response? My whole personhood is disintegrating. Job got a chance all through his experience. He was trying to understand what the Lord is doing in his life and why he had allowed such tragedies to happen in his life, even to the point of of justifying himself at God's expense. And all God had to do is out of a whirlwind ask a series of questions. And Job's response was, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Who am I to question what God's doing? When the disciples were on the Mount of Transfiguration, they ex- were exceedingly terrified. Even the beloved disciple John, who was so intimate with the Lord Jesus that he rested his head on Jesus' bosom. When he saw the Lord, the resurrected Lord on the Isle of Patmos fell at his feet as one dead. Those revelations of the holiness and the the magnitude, really, of God are something that we can wish for. But sometimes when we sing songs about, Lord, show me your glory, the reality of that as I'm singing it, I'm wondering, am I really ready for that? I am, and I'm not. It's, it's, a, it's, so, it's often referred to as the, the beatific vision, the, the blessed vision of, of God. But in this sinful state, in this sinful self, what would happen to me? Just fall into nothingness. Well... The beginnings of this understanding of the greatness, the majesty, the power, the awesome infinity of God is the beginning of our relationship with Him. It must be the starting point because this distinction will always exist between Him and I, between Him and us. The moral likeness that we once had to God and lost when Adam partook of the fruit and, and, and we all sinned in him. That moral likeness will one day be restored. But not those aspects of his nature that are infinite. We will always be the finite. He will always be the infinite. Praise the Lord. He will make us morally pure. And that's only one aspect of holiness when you view holiness as separateness, differentness. He's always going to be holy, separate, complete, 
from us. We have to see that He's always going to be God. We are always going to be human, even though our humanity will be glorified someday. This is also important because it is the beginning for all knowledge for us. As we saw in in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It is the beginning of wisdom. We can begin now to put all things in their proper perspective. When we have God as the creator and sustainer of all things, nobody... Excuse me, no matter how intelligent, no matter how educated, no matter how brilliant they may be, <coughs> if they do not have, <coughs> excuse me, as a basis, a knowledge that God is the center of all things, they don't understand this universe. Excuse me. Have a tickle. (coughs) It is the beginning of wisdom because knowing He is the creator of all things colors everything that we have, every understanding, as we apply the knowledge that we gain by observation. Everything falls into proper perspective. It is the only real basis for morality, knowing that God is the basis for morality. He didn't choose which is right and which is wrong. Right and wrong flows from his nature. And as we reflect his nature, we are right or wrong. Finally, as we hope to show today, This fear of God, this understanding of who God is, is the only workable basis for the love of God. And what we mean here is our love for God. We're not here talking about God's love for us. We're talking about our love for God. And this is what we want to begin to show today, to show that That love which grows out of the fear of God is the only real love for him and is is what is acceptable to him. The reason this is true is because we're sinners. We are sinners by nature and therefore basically selfish. It is the fear of God that keeps us from seeking to express our selfishness, seeking to take advantage of his love. Now, even though nobody can successfully take advantage of God, but thinking they can, well, let's put it this way. Think of the eternal misery of the person who all his life sought to take advantage of the love of God but never realized just how separated he was from God. Thought that they were doing God's service and they were getting the attention to themselves and Lord, it's even in the, it's even in the word of God. Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and on thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many marvelous works and what is the Lord going to say? Depart from me, I never knew you. Some of the saddest words in all Scripture. But turn, if you will, to John chapter 6. And we want to take a look. Again, this is what Mark was speaking of several weeks ago. After the Lord had fed the 5,000. And look at verse, starting in verse 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet that is to come into the world. Notice verse 15. <coughs> Jesus 
knowing they had intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again into the mountain by himself. Now, again, I've mentioned this to several people. What king is ever coronated by his people? A king is crowned, a king is coronated by a higher power. The people are called subjects because they are subject to the authority of the king. But these people show that they really wanted to be the ones in charge. They wanted to have a king, but they wanted him to do what, he, what they wanted him to do. <coughs> Let's keep reading. Well, skip down, I should say, to verse 26, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Because they, had, they, did not, they saw the disciples leave and they knew he was on the shore with them. And they were unaware of the events of the night. <coughs> Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw the miraculous signs, not because you understood what was going on, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. They asked him, What must we do to do the works of, that God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, Believe on the one whom he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see and believe you? Huh? Come again? But look at, listen to their perspective. Our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Moses did it for 40 years. You only did it one day. So what big deal is that for us? We want you to take care of us. We want you to do everything we tell you to do. And what is that? Is that love for the Lord? Or is that love for what the Lord gives? This problem arises because we learn to love God because what we can receive from Him. And this is a horrible expression of our sinful natures. With no fear of God to curb this attitude, this selfish, this selfish bent, many times, Pastor has mentioned in his sermons that there's a large segment that believes that the root of the sin nature is selfishness. Count me as one of those people. The very root and the very fruit of the sin nature is selfishness. Turning towards myself. Looking out for number one. With no fear of God, no understanding of his greatness, his majesty, his power, his awesomeness over us. We continue with the attitude of the world. What's in it for me? And the what in that phrase has only to do with things on this world. We'll see some other things in a what's in it for me scenario that isn't of this world, but uh, at any rate. 
Now it is good, of course, to thank him for what he has given to us. I think for Christians, and we're, we're, we've gone through Halloween, where the, the, all the stores are, are getting rid of their Halloween stock, and what are they going for? Christmas, except the grocery stores, of course. But I think as Christians, Thanksgiving is probably the single most important secular holiday because it's really not secular. Of the whole calendar. It's the time when we focus on the Lord's gifts to us and give Him thanks. It's not merely a time of some ethereal gratitude for for blessings. It's a reminder of who is the giver of the gifts. He's given us so much and we praise him for it. But let me ask you something. When was the last time the Lord did not give you what you prayed for? He denied your desires and you thanked him. How often do we thank him for denying us what we desire with the understanding that even though I didn't get what I prayed for, I know he's right. I sometimes, I, I kind of smile at, at uh, when they're interviewing the, a lot of the NASCAR drivers because a lot of them have, have a strong basis in, in uh, Christendom. I don't know how many of them are truly saved. But when they win the race, you know, they come out and they praise the Lord the, that, that I, I won the race. I wonder how many of them praised the Lord when they got spun out in the last turn and, and crashed their car into the, into the side of the track. Just an illustration. Sometimes this attitude comes out also in our prayers. How often? Look at what you pray. Hold your place here. Think about your prayer list and the things that you pray for regularly. Hold your place here and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. In verses 17 through 21. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that your eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. This is what he prays for other people, that they can know God better and they can understand him better. We can do the same thing if we go to Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, or, or Colossians 1, 9 through 21. Think of the, the prayers that the Apostle Paul prayed for, for others. Now, I'm sure he prayed for those who were sick, and there's not, certainly nothing wrong with that. But when somebody is sick, are we praying merely for a physical wellness so that they can live more happily and better in the, the hyphen of our life? 
using the illustration of a tombstone. You know, our life is that hyphen. We have the beginning date and the end date. Or do we pray that God's purpose for that individual experiencing these things, which ultimately is to drive them closer to the Lord, is that what we're praying for? Is that what we desire for our own life? Is our focus the same focus as those Jews in John chapter 6? Or are we beginning to get a much bigger, broader picture of what God is doing in our life and in the lives of our brothers and sisters around this world? That is beginning to see how the fear of the Lord, understanding His greatness, His majesty, His power, works practically in our life. Have any of you ever heard of uh, a thing called prosperity theology? Yeah, a lot of people have from the chuckles. God wants you rich. And God wants you famous. And God wants you healthy. And if there's nothing in that in your life, then there's a problem with your spirit. There's a problem with your faith. The problem really begins to show itself when we're no longer getting from God when we, what we want from Him and we become bored with God and we begin to seek our desires elsewhere. This is a sure way that, that many who call themselves Christians can become unresponsive to God when he no longer is meeting their expectations, when people have determined how their life should go, but circumstances do not allow that to happen, they become angry and determined to pursue their own course of life rather than the Lord's will. These are the, these are the ones using the Lord's uh, illustration. These are the ones that are sown in the soil with no depth of earth, in the rocky soil. And they spring up very quickly because there is no depth of earth. But when problems and trials and difficulties come, they wither up. And they bring no fruit. Some more illustrations. How many Christians who love the Lord show up for services when the only re attraction is God and worshiping Him? How many churches have gone to using forms of Christian entertainment in, in order to induce and increase attendance? How many people do we get in church when we put on a feed who never otherwise darken the door until the next feed? There are whole church movements based on a philosophy that says, well, you go into the community and you ask the people what they want in the church. Then you build the building... And then you set up your whole church structure based on what these people like. And then you invite the people and then they'll come. This type of golden calf Christianity justifies itself by saying, we're winning them! But to what are we winning them? To true discipleship? To cross-carrying? 
to self-denial, to separation from the world, to to crucifixion of the flesh, to holy living, to nobility of character, to despising the world's treasures, to hard self-discipline, to a total committal to Christ, to use Jim's illustration of the other day, to a blank piece of paper with my signature on the bottom. Here I am, Lord. Do I love the Lord enough to allow that freedom to give myself wholly entirely without reservation to God? That's what the love of God is. Saying, Lord, I love you, and I certainly cannot repay a thing of what you've done for me. The only thing I have is me. Here I am. Jesus required us to take up our cross daily and follow him. That does not mean this. The best explanation, or I should say the one that I like best, of what it means by taking up our cross daily and following the Lord, spoken by A.W. Tozer, who said that in the Roman world, the person who was carrying his cross was going out to die. The cross is a cruel, heartless, and abrupt end of a human life. And that's what Jesus expects his disciples to do to their daily desires, their daily habits, their benefits in this world every single day of their lives. I'm setting aside what would be a benefit of me so that I can serve him better. Now, the question always comes up. How can I possibly love somebody whom I am deathly afraid of? After all, doesn't John say in John 4, 16 through 19, that perfect love casteth out fear? Well, yeah. Do you love the Lord perfectly? With this fear, we recognize that the love he the love he has revealed to us. We recognize it in his common grace. The day in, day out provisions that he's given to us, given to everybody else, even people who spit at him, who hate him, God gives us air to breathe, gives us water to drink, gives us food. We especially recognize the greatness of God in the special grace of sending his son to die for us while we were yet sinners. But God commendeth his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we contemplate these things, How often has somebody done something or said something to you and your first reaction is to hate them?
And then we think, well, I spit at God. I hated God. I didn't want to have anything to do with God. And he died for me. He died. He became a man. He humbled himself and even unto the obedience of the cross. For my benefit, that takes an awesome God. How can I help but love him? And with that example of totally, completely, unreservedly giving himself for us, with that example, we respond in kind. We totally, completely, unreservedly give ourselves back to him. And we do so by giving ourselves to benefit others rather than what we can seek to gain for ourselves. And as we do that, as we, even, even to the point of giving a cup of cold water to a child in the name of a disciple, every my. Think, just think about that illustration. Even the most minute, seemingly insignificant thing that we can do to the, the most minute aspects of our lives, anything that we can do to benefit those whom Jesus has loved, is an expression of our love for him. And as we do that, he matures our love both for others and for him. So that the fear of judgment is cast out. So that we can approach that awesome, magnificent God as a little child comes up to his father without fear, without trembling. Now, if that little child had just uh, broken the lamp by tossing the ball in the house and he'd been told a hundred times, don't throw the ball in the house. Would he ever desire approaching his father, or his mother for that matter? No. But as we do what God wants us to do, if you love me, what did the Lord Jesus say? Keep my commandments. As we do what he expects of us, then that entrance into that awesome infinity becomes not so much a, t a time of quaking, but a time of fulfillment of that love. That is the beatific vision. In summary, we love God because he first loved us. And we can love him whom we fear, but only as we seek to love others rather than seeking to gain. It's a selfless push. 
to do what the Lord wants of us. Love based on the fear of God. Real love for God is not based on what He will give me. It might start there. What He has given me, it might start there. But as we develop, it grows into I love Him because He is. He's great. He is majestic. He is, lo- he is altogether lovely. While we recognize what He's already done for us, we grow out of that to loving Him for whom he, for who he is. Do, loving him for what he's done for us is the first primitive steps in our love for God. Reciprocating that love that he has already shown us. This is good and right and proper. But if we remain at that level, we fail to grow. Can a marriage really grow when one individual only loves because of what they receive? My spouse gives me what I want, therefore I love them. Hardly. A real marriage grows when both individuals love each other because they are their spouse. And it's the same way with God. We grow in our love for Him as we learn to appreciate Him for who He is over and above appreciating what He has done for us. Think about the greatness of his attributes and his and love for him, for who he is. The eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, holy God of the universe. Dwell, try to, if you ever want to boggle your mind, try to think of eternal attributes and try to comprehend them. I keep, I keep, this is a little bit of a side issue, but I can't help but get science in here somewhere. I marvel at the pictures that the Hubble Space Telescope take and just think of the vastness of the universe. We can't even begin to comprehend the distances. But God comprehends the whole. God is greater than the whole of the universe. And he's right here with us now. (coughs) Remember, along with all the other awesome qualities of God, he is altogether lovely, both in his character and... When we see him, we will be awestruck in his beauty. And understanding who he is will only accentuate our love for him when we see what he has given to us and what he is for us what he is, period. But to think that the holy God of the universe, what we just celebrated here in communion, that pictured what the holy God 
of the universe did for me. Who am altogether unlovely and unworthy. We can't help but love the Lord. For lessons in our lives, this sort of a recap. Before we begin, we can begin to truly love the Lord God, we must first begin to gain an understanding of His majesty and holiness. Now, one of the most typical ways that happens is when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. We begin to get a glimpse of the awful purity of God. And like Isaiah, when we see how pure, how majestic, how, how holy He is, we cannot help but see just how Sinful we are. I always use this illustration. From seated back there, these trousers look pretty clean. If you get up real close to them under the light, you really begin to see how dirty they are. The closer we get to the light of God, the more we see just how dirty we are. The closer you get, the more you love the Lord, the more you'll understand how unworthy you are, but at the same time, how great He is. Because He died for me. Number two, it is very typically human to approach God asking, seeking His gifts rather than seeking Him. This is absolutely true of religiously unsaved people because it's the core of our sinful nature is selfishness. In our unsaved state, we cannot help but be selfish. That's, that's the very root. Add a belief in some sort of a God to the mix, and he becomes a heavenly grandpa to give us whatever we want. The problem arises when the saved begin to act that way. And we need to evaluate when I pray, when I come to God, when I seek Him, am I seeking Him for Him Himself? Or am I seeking the bread for another day? And you know what it ta all it takes to do that? Is to fail to be thankful. The quickest way to seek to adv take advantage of God is to fail to be thankful. Truly thankful. Number three, real love shows itself in real commitment. On the human level, we show our love to one another by doing whatever it is in the, in, the, in the eternal best interest of that other person. Since we can never improve God's position in the universe, we can only show our love for Him by obedience. Obedience to His word, to His leadership, and to others that love him. And finally, if you're here 
and have lived your life trying to seek God for what He can give, understand that that is an expression of your sinful nature. But God has a cure. Recognize yourself as a sinner and that Jesus Christ bore in his body your sins on the tree that by faith alone he can he will take those sins and give to you the righteousness of Christ and declare you righteous and his child. And he will begin the transformation process. If that's your position right now, take the time before you leave today. Speak to pastor, speak to myself, speak to one of the other elders or deacons about the matter. We'll be glad to share what God has done.